Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and joining me as always is Anthony Tresca. Hello! This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the just horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so very excited and thankful you for you to be joining us today as we talk about 2019's Pet Cemetery. going to be a bit of a departure from a pattern that we've sort of established where a film has been very well received and we have a problem with it or it's been sort of completely undersold and we think it deserves more credit. Pet Cemetery doesn't quite fit into that category either in terms of the response to it or in terms of how we feel about it. Yeah I'll just go ahead and get into a little bit more of like the critical uh, response to the film now because it's going to be important for framing our discussion. Pet Cemetery got middling reviews like very mixed i would not say bad but not an overwhelmingly good response either the rotten tomato score from the critics was a 57 which is which we've talked about for horror is not terrible no but certainly no one's going to be proud that they've achieved a 57 it's still a rotten tomato it's still not enough to pass any type of class so not great uh, the Metacritic score is a 57, so, I mean, pretty much the same. It, it is the same. That yeah, is the same number. The same I number. said the same number twice. Yes, uh, and thus <laughs> you know that Anthony is not a math major. No, no, not, no, no math for me. The, uh, cinema score from the audience was a C plus, so they said it passed. Wow, C plus uh, is pretty high. Yeah, I mean, that's not just a C. That's yeah. a C with honor. Yeah, oof. Okay. The, however, the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is a 34, so they really hated it. But the audience score on Metacritic is a 5.8. So okay. they're not terrible reviews. No, they're except not. Except for the, the 34 that the audience right. yeah, gave. That's, that's, that's like, pretty bad. That's pretty like unanimous. I think those people did That's a it. you may put it on in the background while you're folding laundry type movie, but definitely not when you're going to even remotely pay to see. Exactly. So this film is not... It doesn't fall in, like what you were saying, overwhelming critic response or just totally being ignored. This film is somewhere in the middle. Yeah, but we wanted to talk about this film for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. We wanted to talk about it in part as a response to the discussion we had about Midsommar and this idea of, like, can something be a horror film when it's kind of, like, defeating all of the columns um, that one has erected of here's what a horror film is. Because Midsommar, so, as as I say, just so, like, joyous, joyfully just knocks down all of the tropes and says, hey, I'm still going to do this thing, and it's going to be pretty good. And it may not be exactly what you typically define, like you were saying, uh, as horror, but it is. Trust me. But on the other hand, right, Pet Cemetery is also asking us to trust it, but in a really different way, because they're saying, look, if ever there's a checklist of, like, here are the things that a, quote, effective horror film does, we've done them. We've done them all. 
Uh, we're good, right? Yeah, it does. It does not mean that we've achieved our goal. And we're so, scary, right? <laughs> oh gosh, if only. Um, and so that's what Anthony and I wanted to actually talk about was this idea of like, how is it that a film can not succeed, as as we will argue that Pet Cemetery does not, despite the fact that on the surface, if you just like pitch the film to someone, it should work in almost every way possible. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're right. with the pitch aspect and which is why it's been uh, on the studio's mind for so very 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 long i mean paramount has been thinking about wanting to produce this picture since march 5th 2010 so they have had nine years to work on not uh, quite because they had to well okay okay. fine fine nine ish years right it's a long time it's a long time with the same writer matt greenberg being hired to write the screenplay. Uh, and so they've had all that time to just develop it for its eventual release in March 16th, 2019. So pretty much almost exactly nine years apart. Uh, Pet Cemetery is, as I said, a 2019 horror film directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Weidman. Uh, it follows the Stephen King novel, obviously, uh, written in... 1983, uh, Pet Cemetery, and it's the second adaptation following the first adaptation in 1989. Stars Jason Clark, John Lithgow, and Amy Scheimetz. It's interesting that they decided to to make this adaptation. So first, from a financial standpoint, it makes sense because if you're going to adapt from Stephen King, you know that you're going to get enough people to see the film, whether or not it's good, right? Like that's just kind of. Steve- Assuming you do one of his more mainstream yes. ones, and Pet Cemetery is undoubtedly yes. one of his more mainstream ones because, I mean, as Stephen King talks about in numerous interviews, he's like, this is the one book where my editor said, hey, you might have gone too far in dealing directly with the children and animals in right. this one. But despite the fact that, you know, it has King's name's name attached to it, it is interesting they decided to adapt from a, from a film that, the first film, that did not have very fantastic reviews either. Again, it was pretty middling. Yeah, 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, so exactly yeah. middling. Yes, exactly. <laughs> ah. um, so there, I think already we're, we're running into an example of this checklist, right? Have a, have a story from, like, the horror writer. Check. But have it be a story that hasn't been adapted very successfully. Right? So, like, everything on this checklist, there's this, like, hidden thing that in fine print right so, it's, mm-hmm. so and this is just the start of of that so the main difference between this adaptation and the 1989 version as well as Stephen King's original book um, is that they've made one very major change uh, it's the differentiating of the child who dies and Stephen King actually talked about that in the in, in an interview with Entertainment Weekly and he was like, yeah, it's fine. They did a good job. It's all it's all nuts. You can take Route 301 and go to Tampa, or you can take Route 17 and go to Tampa. Both times you're going to come out at Tampa. So he's like, any changes they made didn't matter, because, as he'll later go on to talk about in this article, Stephen King loves this adaptation. So who are we to disagree with Stephen King? That is a good question, and that does make me feel as though... The answer is no one. I'm no one compared to, but but you're right. I mean, he. I would agree with him on that. That it doesn't matter, in some ways. Well, okay. Let me actually 
use his metaphor. It is true that both routes will take you to Tampa. Yeah. That is 100% correct. However, taking the scenic route versus taking the route that goes through the desert where you don't see anything, right? And I realize there's no desert with Tampa, but, but you know, that sort of idea, right? It is a different experience. The end result may be the same, but the experience was fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. And I would say that this is just kind of one of many examples in this film where, again, if you sort of have that checklist, the kid dies, check, um, in tiny, small, fine print. But it's a different child, and therefore it might be a completely different experience. And, oh, by the way, it doesn't matter. I don't know. Maybe it does. Yes, it does. Right? (laughs) Like, there's just a lot of that sort of things happening in the film. So what we were going to do... If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that usually we have a very, like, clear ritual, right? Um, We do our introduction. Then Anthony, like, kindly turns the mic over to me. Mm -hmm. I share a critical framework. And then I'm like, but Anthony, tell us more about how the film was made. And then he does. And then we kind of go into the things that we liked and didn't like. I'm loving this bit of meta commentary about our own way in which we make a podcast. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about the best way to do it. And we're purposefully deviating from that in this particular episode. Yeah, because here we don't want to adhere to any checklists. That's that's right. As we've learned from Pet Cemetery, doesn't always work out too well. Yeah, so I thought what would be nice would be to kind of just go through like the things that we feel are checklist type items that should make this a really powerful horror film and that occasionally do because there are Mm -hmm. some really great moments in here um and then the ones that that just are checkmarked but when you read the fine print you realize that it's not good enough um and so things to keep in mind to have that sort of critical framework because i can't completely escape it yeah we can't we can't just totally throw out the baby in the bathwater. No, that would be bad, but also somehow like fitting for this book. It would be fitting for this specific thing we're talking about, but alas. There's a there's a recent edited collection that has come out entitled Horror Comes Home, Essays on Hauntings, Possessions, and Other Domestic Terrors in Cinema. And in the introduction, they actually specifically talk about Stephen King, and so I thought that was kind of... Um, I just want to read this paragraph because I think it's really nice. So it says, As children, we are no strangers to the horrors of home. They lurk beneath the bed, down the hall, or just the other side of the closet door. Midge, misshapen fingers creep across the wall as tree branches move in the moonlight, and floorboards creak beneath the weight of unseen menaces. We pull the covers tightly over her head and silently pray for morning. Stephen King writes, At night, when I go to bed, I still am at pains to be sure that my legs are under the blankets after the lights go out. I'm not a child anymore, but I don't like to sleep with one leg sticking out. Because if a cool hand ever reached out from under the bed and grasped my ankle, I might scream. Yes, I might scream to wake the dead. In the real world, the relief of daybreak comes Rational minds prevail and life goes on. But as King confesses, those childhood fears rooted in the home are never fully vanquished. And then this is another quote from him. That sort of thing doesn't happen, of course, and we all know that. The thing under my bed waiting to grab my ankle isn't real. I know that, and I also know that if I'm careful to keep my foot under the covers, it will never be able to grab my ankle. And I think, you know, I mean, you see so much of of that, like, anxiety, that irrational anxiety at the heart of of all of Stephen King's works, mm-hmm. but especially the ones that are really domestic and home-based, which, again, is all Stephen King works. Yeah. Um, but I feel like the essence of that is sort of what I think much of Pet Cemetery is trying to do, this idea that, like, we never completely are able to let go of our childhood rational beliefs that if we just want something bad enough, it'll work out. Mm-hmm. If we lose a pet, someday we'll get to see that pet again. Or- 
if we lose a sister, yes, someday we can see that sister again, he, and that relationship will be fine. And exactly, it will all work out. Exactly, and so I think again, if we're thinking about like what makes a story so great and why it really is something that should be adapted um, and should be kind of re-examined, it's because at its heart, if we have this checklist, it does touch into something really profoundly disturbing. And also, I think it does have some really powerful themes throughout the themes about grief, longing, what it looks like to mourn. Yes. Uh, I think that, and these are themes that are not unique specifically to uh, Stephen King. I mean, this is something that was also touched upon in Midsommar. Yes. Hereditary. Other things we've talked about on this very podcast. Um, But those are good, I mean, universal themes that do allow for a rich uh, discussion. Yes. Offering of ideas. And I would say that where this film shines are when it remembers that. Exactly. Um, The parts... And so, again, if we think of this checklist, I think part of my problem is is that rather than saying, okay, but good, we got this, like, one big check of uh, childhood fears manifested in adult situations. Instead, they were like, but also, let's kind of have a zombie-like element. Mm. Ooh, but also, let's have this, like, supernatural Native American god element. Mm-hmm. Ooh, but let's also have the body as a grotesque thing, right? And it's just like, they tr- it was like, there was this thought that if they put in more items that can be checked off, that it will somehow make it better. More scary. Yes. Because more marketable. That, right. Well, and I, I'm sure that is absolutely one of their thoughts, was that, you know, if we want to reach the biggest demographic, we have to make sure that we have as many, like, here the here's what horror is mm-hmm. boxes to check off. And in that way, I think the film failed itself. I, I think so as well. Because just having all of these elements doesn't mean that they have successfully done all of these elements. Correct. Nor does it mean that all of these elements can be in the same text. Yeah, they don't... Just because they're all good tropes and elements of a, of the genre and have worked successfully in the genre does not mean every element will work when you just throw it in all together. And we've talked about this before. We've t- we talked about it with us. That you cannot create an effective horror film if your answer is, here's a bag, reach your hand in, and pull out the horror of your choice. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just not an option. And I will say, I think that at least with Jordan Peele, uh, with us, it was at least he's setting up, he has made the bag and you reach in and he just wants you to interpret what it is. With this one, they've just dumped the bag everywhere and all of the things are everywhere and you can see everything. And you're... That is a good, I think that is a good distinction and I think that that creates the situation where, so before we started recording you were talking about how like you really saw this as being a clear like beginning, middle, and end type yes, film. Yes, uh, I, I came up with a with a metaphor for it. Um, do indulge me, dear listeners, in a brief metaphor. Um, I think Pet Cemetery is a bit like a poop sandwich. Huh. Uh, okay. I believe there is one piece of poop in the beginning, there is one piece of poop in the end, and in the middle there is pretty good sandwich fillings. But... Would you eat that sandwich? Does that mean that sandwich is good? Yeah, and I think even if I feel bad using that metaphor, even though when I was rewatching the film, I really had to like focus, mm-hmm. and I think I took a nap. So I watched it um, 
while I was flying. And I'm pretty sure at one point I did, I paused it and I like slept for 20 minutes because I was just <laughs> so bored that I just couldn't like stay awake. Um, but even if you don't want to go with the poop sandwich metaphor, I think still the idea of like a sandwich metaphor works really nicely mm-hmm. where you could say that like the, the things on either end, you could even go with like rye bread, which I know lots of people like rye bread. I don't um, because I That's think it's I just... That's why I went straight through the poop yeah, because I it, can't... But I some people of... liked it, though. That's the thing we have to remember, right? Is that it wasn't just, a, like, everyone... Because no one that I've ever met is like, mmm, yay, poop sandwich. But some <laughs> people are going to be like, mmm, yay, rye bread. Um, and I think that's what the, the filmmakers thought they were giving us, right? It's something that was like, you know, you have to have a bit of an acquired taste, but boy, if you do. But I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's what happened. But what I find really interesting about your metaphor that I want you to elaborate on is that middle section. Yes. Right? So where, what is that middle section to you? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, I think that the film really works for about 20, 25 minutes uh, in the section from where Ellie is hit by the truck mm-hmm. uh, all the way up until uh, right after the scene with Ellie and her mother with the, the giving the hug. Just this whole section of dealing with the grief, the aftermath of the death, the return of Ellie, um, that, and the return of the, the mother and the son back mm-hmm. to the house. What is, and I think that whole section mm-hmm. is, it, it feels out of place because it's so good in a film yes. that the rest of it is so not good. Yes. That I was like, I remember like getting into it, like when the first, I was watching the beginning, I was like, ugh. God, what a drag. I came to that section, I was like, wait a second. I totally misremembered this movie. Mm-hmm. This is excellent. This section is so good. Yeah. And then the end is very disappointing, and it diminishes all the goodwill it's built up in that 20, 25 minutes, but... So let's let's kind of go through it, because I think the beginning is where a lot of those checklist items are established. Yes. So again, if we go back to that one that they were like, and it is adapted from a Stephen King novel and check. If you go to this fine print, what you have to remember, no Stephen King novel except for Carrie is short. Yes. And one of the reasons that Stephen King, I think, is so successful as a writer is that he has the space to build up in the first couple hundred pages or in it, 500 pages, (laughs) um, the, the characters so that you truly care for them. You care for their situations. You realize that you're not a doctor in a small town, but that's okay because that's not, you don't need to be, be. um, but you can't do that effectively in a movie that's going to be approximately it's I think it's like a hundred minutes right um and so you can you can't do that where you spend the first 30 or 40 minutes just giving us this like setup in this build-up because nobody wants to to see that 101 minutes excellent and I know that because every so often I would pause the movie to see how much longer was in it because I was I was surprised in this rewatching by how long that beginning is. Yeah, it's a long, long ending, and I the pointless cold open doesn't help to make it any shorter. Which I think is another checklist horror item, right? Grab people immediately with something that's gonna like shock them. Right? And I think in theory, it's something that does make sense. How much of Stephen King's work is about this domestic home, and it's the beginning as this whole like you see the fire of this. Uh, this location, you see the home is destroyed. So I think in theory it makes sense. It's just that it is 
there's it serves no purpose. No, because I feel that you have to know going into this film that it's going to inevitably end there, right? One of the reasons that we have those um, reveal beginnings, right, is because we want to sort of surprise people or remind people, like, but this isn't going is, to stay perfect. This is where it's going. But it never, the film never has it be ideal, right? From the beginning, um, the wife <laughs> is seeing and hearing things in the house of her sister. Um, from the beginning... He one of the first cases we see him having is the the death of the student, and then he starts haunting him. Like so, you can't do that. There right? was never any normalcy for exactly. that they needed to break. Exactly. And so it just came off as yet just another. It's one of the cheap things that the film does to momentarily give the audience a moment of perhaps fright, fear. And there's many moments right where we have that sort of like. Do we have at least X number of jump scares? Oh, Check. my God. So, you know this about me. I know. You know I hate jump scares. And you know I normally love them. Yes, I do. I do know this is one of the things, even within this genre, yes. which we both have established, we both do like, and we tend to agree yes. with each other. This but is the one this. thing where we don't 100% agree. No, no. And that's okay. It's okay. But this film, but Ugh. again, I feel like a jump scare can be done really well and can serve a really good purpose. In this film, it truly did feel like it was a checkmark move. Oh, yeah. Especially in the introduction. Oh, my God. I wrote, I have wrote that down in my notes. That jump scare early on with the truck, the room. Yes. Uh, it, foreshadowing. So heavy. I was, I was watching it with some people, and someone leaned over to me and said, I don't know what they're foreshadowing, but they just foreshadowed it poorly. Yeah, and... You know, I actually had less problems with that one than some of the other later jump scares in that introduction. But the but the truth of the matter is is that the introduction makes it very clear that they're going to try to tick off as many boxes mm-hmm. as possible. I think the inclusion of John Lithgow is another one, right? So not just the character of like, ah, oh, we have to have the slightly wise but slightly creepy old man, um, old white man, but also the casting of John Lithgow, right? This is another Beloved thing. character yes, actor. That when you, I'm, I, and I won't lie, when I saw that he was going to be in this movie, I was so excited because yeah. I know what he's capable of doing. He's a good actor. Yes. But he had no opportunity. Yeah, the script right? really does not give his character a lot. So it doesn't give his character a lot to do. No. And what it does give him to do doesn't make a lot of sense. So this is it, another instance where the fine print is, he'll be in this movie, but he's not going to make a lot of sense as a character, and he's going to have not much to work with. And the, the, the character of, uh, of Judd does make sense in the novel, I think. And I, It's been so long since I've read it, I don't remember his character in the novel. All I can think about is the stupid, stupid line that he has in the film of, like, well, uh, you know, I can't help but want to go back there, even though I know it's not going to work out. I shouldn't have shown it to you. Like, there was just, it was not set up well. In the, yeah, in the novel, it's more of, like, the pull and the draw of this location is more clearly established from the beginning and is carried throughout the whole thing. Whereas in this, it's just, like, a single throwaway line, yeah, it a makes single it seem reading like, from a book. Yeah, it makes it seem like... The, yeah, he's felt this, like, slight pull, but he didn't feel it strong enough to have acted on it in 50 years. You know, like, yeah. that just makes no sense. No. Um, and we have other things that, mm-hmm. again, in this introduction, if we're creating this checklist, creepy children the ritual, in masks. The ritualistic, yes. the ritualistic nature Which, of this. that was one of their big sort of advertising it things. It was. Uh, I was at um, the 
Austin City Limits Festival. No. I was at South by Southwest uh, over spring break. Not because I was attending the festival. I don't have that kind of money. But I was there visiting one of my friends who had the money to attend the festival. And uh, walking around the streets, they the Pet Cemetery, because it premiered at this film festival, um, they had the children walking around in the masks on the street. And I was like, oh, that's pretty good. That's yes. pretty effective. Yes. That's pretty scary. That must be a big part of the movie. And again, if we go back to... It's not. Yeah, well, and that's the problem, not. right? Is that if we go back to what King said... If we go back to this idea that this should be a film that is disturbing because we realize how many children's rituals are really macabre, um, you know, and it's things like Ring Around the Rosie when you find out that that's like referencing the play yeah. and things like that, um, or it's the fact that we say things to kids like don't let the bed bugs bite. How creepy are we being, right? So there's all of these moments that, again, if that's what this film had been about, it would have been so effective. Instead, it was just a, do we have creepy children engaged in a ritual? Check. One final checklisty type of thing that really gets established throughout this first part um, is the relationship between uh, Rachel and her sister Zelda. Yes. Um, and I say really gets established, but I, what I should really I should really be saying is is half-heartedly established and kind of feels thrown in just so they can have that body horror and... Same with um, the gentleman who... Victor, right? Right. right. That is just like, okay, we see that you know how to pump fake blood. Um, but you're right. It does... It just feels like it's another thing to be added in there. But what's really interesting they is... They've got to earn that R rating. That's so, right. But, and they've got to be edgy. Yes, they do. But you know what's funny is that I remember in the original Pet Cemetery being very disturbed by Zelda because they did such a better job of of making her relevant to that particular film. But you're correct that she's just like, oh, good. In case you weren't sure where the source of horror is, let's also have it be A, body horror, but yeah. B, um, the past. And it's just the, like, the silly com nature of the conversation that gets them to this. Yes. Th this is the first time this couple is having a conversation yeah. about death. Really? Yeah. This is... Yeah. And <laughs> they have children together. And you They've know, been together. <laughs> yeah, and it, you're right. It felt very much like one of those, like, what is this? Well, dear son, you know, like... It, Allow it just... me to monologue real quick. Yes, and, and then the flashback, having the flashback, which there was something really wrong about the, the little girl that played Rachel, her hair, in that scene. Like, they had her wearing this weird wig, so that, like... I wasn't sure with any of that. What is the point of this? Are you trying to show that this is a couple that has never talked about death? Because that seems strange. But maybe that's the way it is. Maybe. Are, are you trying to talk about someone that... Are we trying to talk about, like, domestic abuse where, like, they should have never left a 10-year-old to take care of someone, like, terminally broken? I mean, there's just, like, so many questions. But it's just kind of shoved in there. Mm -hmm. It's not even, like, built in. It's like they saw this tiny crack and they're like, oh, we need about two more minutes. Let's shove in this huge big storyline that will take ten minutes, but let's just force it in there. Um, yeah, because it's like a pretty, it's pretty significant. It is in the novel. It and is. I, I have not seen uh, the movie in a good while. I don't really remember yeah. the nineteen eighty. I just remember movie. being very disturbed by by Zelda um, more so than anything else in that film. Which I don't know if that was because you know that is what's scary to a kid or or not. But but yeah, that's just something to think about because. This issue of, like, what are we supposed to be afraid of 
really becomes, I think, for me, the fundamental flaw of this film when we talk about the conclusion. Oh, yeah. Um, it is ridiculous. Conclusion is so bonkers, and so just feels like they took, they had a bucket, and they just threw it all. Yes. Everything. Yes, and so we have the homicidal child. Yep. We have the matricide and patricide. Yep. We have the zombies. Yep. We have the house burning down. Yep. Um, we have the threat to the tiny little rather adorable child. Correct. Um, it's just like, you're right. It's <sighs> and, and we have, um, you know, what else? No. We even have, like, the fog, right? I mean, there's just so much that's happening. We even have the fog. There's just so much that's happening at that moment moments of the final part of the film that it's just not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And that whole descent into madness at the end yes. is made so frustrating by the fact that, as I, uh, as we talked about earlier, there's that brilliant middle section that handles the themes of grief so well. I would say. And here's where I think a checklist can actually be useful. So one of the reasons that Anthony and I have been thinking about this checklist um, is that I'm getting ready to teach a a class on the home and horror. And I assume most of the students are going to be casually aware of horror. When I sent them an email reminding them that it was going to be scary movies that were watching, no one jumped ship. So I assume they all want to be there. But there is kind of this question of like, do we need to, to build up a generic definition, which I'm not usually, if ever, a big fan of. You know, I also am not a big fan. But it is, it serves a purpose, right? Especially in a class that's on a specific genre. But as we were thinking about that, we immediately began to realize that there are films like Pet Cemetery that by all definition, if you have a checklist, you should be like, well, this is the best film that has ever come out. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so that kind of got us thinking about it. But I want to talk about the fact that I think that part of what makes the middle successful is they refined their checklist. Yes. So in this middle section, there are no jump scares. That is true. There, there aren't, uh, after the obvious big one of the death of Ellie, but I don't, that's not, that didn't feel like a jump scare to me. It's just like very much, like, is it loud? Yes. Is it, was it, were you maybe perhaps surprised, especially if you were familiar with the version where Gage dies, right? That like, you're like, okay, well then what happened here, right? Like, so there was some surprise element, but it was not a jump scare. No, 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 no. From there on out, there was none of the cheap jump scares that the first part of the film had mm-hmm. relied so heavily on yes. for all of their sources of horror. For here, here uh, in this middle section, they kind of switched the source of horror from look at what we can do with this loud marrying of the this boom to this crazy image or the fake blood we can pump the fake blood right to this let's let's slow it down and let's switch it to a thoughtful kind of meditation of grief and horror and what you would do and the implications of if you could bring your dead daughter back to life and so do we still have things like disillusion of family check yeah right but now it's okay well we're not going to do everything in this section so what what would we want to include right and i think about the makeup the makeup in this part um with ellie with ellie was fantastic and the her performance oh and her performance yes um you were neither of us are super fond of children kind of period but child actors 
especially, but she did so well in this section. And there was a couple places she did really well. She did yeah. really well when they're laying in bed. Like, and I was like, get out of that bed. That is so disturbing. The get bathtub out. scene. The bathtub was scene. Excellent. The dancing scene. Yes. Um, and it all came to like this incredible scene, which is the best scene in the movie. Yes. I think we both agree yes. uh, between Ellie and the, her mother, Rachel, like give your Give a hug. Give the yeah. hug. Hug your daughter. And she is simultaneously nodding her head yes and shaking her head no. Mm-hmm. And and so again, if we if we have that checklist, um, understated makeup, unlike the blood squirting out or Zelda, instead you can just see her veins. She's just a little bit more translucent. And it's so much of it comes from her performance. Yes. Rather than just anything they've superimposed exactly. onto her. Exactly. Um, so we have that, right? Again, so we have a checklist, but it's a smart checklist. We have a conflicted character, which you kind of need in a horror moment checklist. And so really, like, this section works because they understood that there's a reason having a checklist is helpful, but you have to be refined in it, and you have to be delicate in how you achieve it. it is, it's very true, because the section works very masterfully because... It, it really it kind of takes away two characters. I mean, yes. Rachel and Gage are removed. Yes. So it's really just focusing on three characters. So they've inherently kind of limited it. Yes. And you see uh, Jason Clark's character, Lewis, really go through a character shift yes. here. And there's a lot of really good character moments here that, provide, that lead to these true elements of horror. Mm-hmm. And it's very moving. Like, yes. very disturbed. Uh... And it works so well. Even the part that I thought was a little bit more flawed where Ellie uh, shifts into Judd's wife and shifts back to, to Ellie. Oh, I would put that after. Okay, okay, good. Ex- good say, but even even that part, which is at the tail end of the sequence, right, um, does a good job of, of trying to at least say, okay, well, let's stay consistent. Let's we, we have these five things that we have agreed to check off. Let's make sure those are the only five things we're mm-hmm. working on or, you know, whatever. That's a made up number. But but I think that, that that's where the film shines. Part of the reason, though, I think that that middle section, which, again, in terms of the 101 minutes, is not the middle section. Not No, it does not fall. No, right, it, like it, it falls about 70 minutes Seven, in. Yeah. Because I, I remember that after it happened, I was like, but I know there's so much more that's going to happen. And they just, like, cram it into the last 10 minutes. Um. One of the reasons I thought that section was so effective is that I think it revealed what should really have been sort of the tagline. So one of the taglines I feel of the film is Judd's line of, you know, uh, what's dead should stay dead. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's actually what's disturbing about this film. I think what's disturbing is more something like sometimes what's broken can never be fixed. That's, yes. And it starts with, and then if we have that be the, like, tagline, almost everything else then begins to have more relevance. And if that is the thing that they had centered on and had gone in with something more like that, I think they would have trimmed elements. I think they could have made the relationship between Rachel and Lewis so that if this is the first time they're having this weird conversation about death, we feel like that makes sense because this is a couple that's That's kind of broken. Yeah. Instead, it was like, oh yeah, it was a little broken because we were in Boston, but it's so much better now. There was none of that like lingering remnants. No. Um, that I think is, again, what makes the story so effective um, and would have been a perfect, if they had said, this is our item, how do we build a checklist from this? 
I think that would have been beautiful. Instead of like, here's a horror film. Let's throw in everything, like you said. Then let's throw it out and just start checking stuff off. Yep. And then people will be afraid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which we were. We were. Um, but we were not, horrified. Yes. <laughs> but just not because of the checklist items. Correct. <laughs> so, dear listeners, if you're going to make a film and you want to try to, like, have that challenge of, like, checking things off of this horror genre, do yeah, it. Do it. Just make sure your themes and yes. what you are trying to say is extremely clear. Yes. And that is what's driving the checklist. Yes. Not, hey, I've got a whole bunch of fake blood back here. What if we just, like, did some stuff with yeah. that? In teaching, there's this idea of backward design, where you begin with the objective that you want, and then you go backwards and figure out the assignments that you want students to do, the text that you want them to read. Instead of getting all excited and be like, I'm going to have them read this text, and I don't care if it fits. I'm going to have them I, do this assignment. I mean, that's the same thing in yes. acting, too, exactly. where you have your objective, and every single thing goes to further this objective. Exactly. That's what every action you take. And you have to start there, right? You don't begin with some quirk that you want to build into your character. It's not like, hey, I've got this limp. Yes. <laughs> it's my character is this, so what would that mean? And I feel like if, if this film had done that, I feel like many horror films would do that, right? If they would start with the end goal first and then work their way backwards, um, it would make for a really effective film. Yeah. Our next film is going to be the 2006 Kiwi Splatter, which is New Zealand horror. Uh, that's the genre for it. Uh, Black Sheep. And I think what makes Black Sheep a really nice choice after Pet Cemetery is first we're continuing with our like evil animal motif. Yeah. But also... Very important to the podcast. It is super important. I think every podcast <laughs> should have an evil animal motif. Um, but also... You know, if you're thinking about, like, a checklist, scary cat that comes back from the dead, evil child that comes back from the dead, like, these are things that you're like, yeah, this would be in a good film. Were sheep um, is maybe not something that is on the average person's uh, checklist for a good horror film, but I think that this is... Do scary sheep not keep you up at night, too? <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, after this film, they do. Um, <laughs> but, but this is something to, to kind of be thinking about as we kind of continue on this exploration. So... I hope you will join us for our next discussion on the 2006 film Black Sheep. In the meantime, uh, remember to like, share us with your friends, subscribe, do all that fun jazz things, and then uh, be sure to tune in to us next time. 